0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 264E, Rebel Queen VI, The Fleet. Sir Richard Brook was a man close to and trusted by the Duke of Northumberland. They'd been together on the Scottish campaigns of 1544 and the French War of 1545. Sometime after the 7th of July 1553, Brook had been ordered to take a squadron of six ships out into the Thames estuary to patrol the Essex and Suffolk coast by his mate, Northumberland. Brooke's task was twofold. To stop the Princess Mary from fleeing England to the continent to join her friends in empire and conversely to stop any potential ships from the empire bringing support to Mary in England. Northumberland did not realise that not only was there no chance of either happening but that he had unwittingly put his own cause in great danger. Brooke's fleet contained 900 men but in their haste to get on station to prevent Mary escaping the seamen were rather inexperienced and to try and make sure that he retained control, Northumberland had imposed his own captains on the fleet so the men and their captains didn't have much of a relationship. Nonetheless, Brooke sailed out into the estuary and the fair breeze blew and the furrow followed free and they sailed towards their objective. Only to be hit by the weather. England is liable to do that sort of thing. Unfortunately, it has a lot of weather. Anyway, the fleet was scattered. One of the ships was the Greyhound, a relatively large ship of 200 tonnes, captained by one of Northumberland's men, Gilbert Grice. Grice was forced apart from the rest of Brooke's squadron, so he was forced to take shelter in the Lowestoft roads. Once everything had quietened down a bit weather-wise, Captain Grice went ashore to gather some intel. It turns out this was a mistake. The townsmen of Lowestoft were suspicious, despite Grice's ragged staff livery badges, and so they locked him up until they could get things straight. Meanwhile, Mary's agents were active all along the coast, trying to raise support for her. And one of Mary's servants, a man called Pooley, got wind of Grice's situation. What a fantastic opportunity. Getting a hold of her ship was one thing, getting a hold of men on the ship was another. But the big prize, the real McCoy, the big kahuna, was the ordnance, the guns. In the honoured business game of Bullshit Bingo... The ordnance was a game-changer, a paradigm shift. With artillery, Mary's cause began to look genuinely credible. And if it was Pooley that could get said ordnance for his princess, well, he'd be the bee's elbows and no mistake. He would be rewarded handsomely. His world would flow with milk and honey. His wife would be proud of him. And what more could he want? Pooley was so excited, it's quite possible that a little wee came out. Though there is no corroborating documentary evidence to support the wee hypothesis, and so this must remain historical speculation. Anyway, onwards. Pooley was on that ship like a rat up a drain. The shipside boss, given that Grice was in the clink, was the ship's master, a man called Herlock. Pooley laid out the life of plenty and general awesomeness that would be theirs if Hurlock were to place his ordnance at the disposal of her most glorious majesty, the rightful Queen Mary. Horlock dithered. Meanwhile, Grice was in jail doing his nut, aware that the Queen's agent was out there subverting the path of righteousness. The Goodman of Lowestoft would not release him, but they did allow him to send his own bribes, shipwards, gold rings. First one, then another, then another. He was beside himself. It is possible that a little we Well, you know. I was in this kind of situation once, with two competing offers. Obviously... The kingdom didn't depend on it. There is only one answer. Elizabeth I, she knows this. If making a decision is really nasty, then, you know, just don't make it. So Herlock just sailed away to find Brooke and the rest of his squadron, leaving both Grice and Pooley. If that was only the extent of the problem. In common with many soldiers and mariners in the early modern period, none of the sailors had been paid for yonks. And so they were all thoroughly grumpy given that the captain appeared to be absent without leave, as it were, or shall we say unavoidably detained, look, why not help themselves to the captain's chest? Which they duly did, distributing the cash amongst themselves, and then they chucked the chest into the sea, which is great, but not exactly legal. The men of the Greyhound needed a route back to acceptance, which is when they sailed into the Orwell Haven. I don't know whether our hero Pooley had managed to warn Mary's household officers of the opportunity going on here, but it is entirely possible, because Sir Henry Jermingham was not the kind of man to be wandering around the Essex coastline for no reason. Jermingham was in Mary's inner sanctum, but it was he that now made contact with the Greyhound and Orwell Haven. The crew saw their chance; they could cut a deal. Look. Jeremy, baby, we'll help you arrest all the pro-Jane captains of the squadron. You'll get a bunch of artillery. In return, you'll turn a blind eye to any minor misdemeanours we may or may not have allegedly committed in relation to a chest full of Spondulics. How's about it? Well, Jermingham thought about this seriously for, ooh, you know, half a nanosecond and then said marry, which, as you'll know from your Shakespeare, means, yeah, all right then. As it happens, no violence was actually necessary... When the Greyhound reached the fleet, Brooke and his captains were faced with a choice. They could fight the Greyhound, or they could join a cause that it seems most of their crews would prefer anyway, and so might well just ignore any orders to the contrary. So, enthusiastic support for swapping sides to Mary seemed a reasonable or even unavoidable decision. And so it was that around the 15th of July, Richard Brooke had decisively taken his squadron over to Mary's side. On that very day, Brooke rode to Framlingham and there he presented the loyalty of his fleet to Mary. By the 16th, orders had been issued to land the artillery and bring the pieces to Framlingham. By the 18th of July at the latest, Mary's army had artillery. So, we are now back riding not with Mary but with Northumberland. After a very long day's march from Cambridge, he was finally approaching Bury St Edmunds he would have been looking forward to a chance for a bit of rest, but more importantly, to meet with the extra men that Lords Oxford and Clinton would bring with them. The army was ordered to set up camp, and as it did, news started coming in from messengers and from Northumberland scouts. The first bad news of the day was that Lord Clinton had unaccountably failed to move towards Northumberland, with the pretty clear indication that he was doing the classic Bosworth manoeuvre, perfected by the Stanleys. He'd just hang around, if that's all as well with you, until he knew the right side to join. Then he'd be really enthusiastic. Now, maybe this would still be been OK. Northumberland still had the better organised professional force. He had the artillery. But now came the kicker. From Northumberland scouts came the news that Mary's army was now 10,000 strong. Bit of a rabble, probably, but odds of 3 to 1 didn't sound great. Although, with the artillery advantage, you know, maybe it would be okay except Northumberland now learned that there was in fact no artillery advantage, that Brooke had defected to Mary, Mary had guns. This was one piece of bad news too many. Northumberland had to admit that what had once seemed like a dead cert was now looking like a train smash. He now had one option, he needed to regroup and get more men. Maybe there could at very least be some sort of Mexican standoff or, you know, Suffolk standoff where he and the council could negotiate a deal. Even now the Duke could see the situation was far from lost. News arrived at this point from his son Robert Dudley that Kings Lynn, the largest town in the north of Norfolk, had declared for Jane and that would generate a fresh contingent of soldiers. So it could even be that by returning to Cambridge more men would come in, brought by the power of the Royal Summons and there was a chance still to win this. Northumberland sent messengers thundering down the lanes and roads to the council in the tower, telling them what had happened, writing to them somewhat sharply, and urging them to send more men to him at Cambridge. On the morning of the 19th of July, Northumberland turned around, struck camp, started the 25-mile march back to Cambridge. As they marched, more news trickled in. Body blows, as they're otherwise known. For example, the Earl of Oxford had finally moved, so that's good, and he'd moved all the way into Mary's camp, where he'd arrived the previous day on the 18th. So that's bad then. In these circumstances, of course, I find an aphorism or two can help. Maybe Northumberland reached for one or two like, I don't know, the dark before the dawn or things have to get worse before they get better. Why is that, by the way? Why is that so often necessary? Why can't they just get better? Anyway, maybe he simply put his head in his hands. Who knows? But around him, as he marched, his army began to pick up the signals and get the measure of things. And many now began to take the chance to cut their losses and slip quietly away. The Duke's army marched towards Cambridge, shedding soldiers like dead skin, if you'll pardon the analogy. And what of London, then? There can be little doubt that as the 19th of July dawned, confidence was at a bit of a premium. Throughout the conflict so far, actually, the council had remained very firm. The series of circulars and proclamations carry the signatures of numerous councillors, And maybe Jane and Guildford started that fateful day of the 19th with a feeling of reasonable confidence. For Jane, there was a pleasant occasion when one of the warders of the tower came to ask her to be godmother to his son and asked her to name him. They named the lad Guildford. And maybe that's a little indication that over the last few days, Jane and Guildford had begun to find strength in their relationship. As they chatted this over, they knew that Suffolk was leading a council meeting as normal in the Tower. That morning, a letter was issued from the council to Richard Rich on his mission to raise troops in Essex, urging him to stay loyal. They didn't know at the time, but they were already too late. Rich was not a man for noble lost causes. Of course, the news from the east was awful. Northumberland in retreat, Mary's army growing. But it appeared that the council were holding their nerve. That morning the council discussed a plan for the earls of Pembroke and Arundel to leave the tower and raise their manred on their estates in the west of England and then march back towards London and crush the rebels emerging in the Thames Valley. The council meeting broke up. Obviously, if this was the plan, some of the councillors at least would need to leave the tower, but now actually Suffolk found he could no longer enforce his rules to prevent councillors from leaving anyway. His authority was always shaky. Respect for him was wafer thin. With one excuse or another, Jane and her parents found that the tower was now worryingly empty. Now look, maybe this was fine. The councillors taking a break, a bit of air, and Pembroke and Arundel heading off for their mission. But the muttering and subdued panic had found expression. Cecil had spoken to Arundel, and what he learned from him allowed him to dash off a letter to his estates, holding the recruitment of his own men from joining Northumberland's army. Because... What he'd found out was that there was to be a meeting of the council, but the meeting would not take place at the tower under Suffolk's eyes. Instead, by various means, as soon as they were unseen and outside the tower, the councillors made their way to that other great medieval castle of London, now gone, of course, Baynard Castle, which at the time was the Earl of Pembroke's gaff. Although Pembroke hosted the inaugural meeting of the Self-Preservation Society, it was Arundel who broke ranks first. Northumberland, he declared, was a thirster of blood, a man with very small or no conscience at all, I do not doubt, but you shall have good cause to concur with me in opinion and to show how little I ought to esteem the tyrant. Arundel went on to talk about how Mary shone with goodness, that it was all Northumberland's fault. The floodgates were open. Pembroke laid his hand on his sword and he shouted, If my Lord Arundel's persuasions cannot prevail with you, either this sword shall make Mary queen or I shall lose my life. Brave Sir Herbert! The process of betrayal, cowardice and self-justification is never pretty. We shouldn't judge, of course. I suspect I'd have been in the front rank. But of their commitment and responsibility to Jane and of her future, there was nothing in the meeting, nor was there any dignity. The meeting was in chaos, with scenes of jubilation, relief, hope. It was decided they would process to the heart of the city to Cheapside, the wide, broad marketplace. Servants rushed from the room, sent by their masters to spread the word, to gather the crowd to hear the glad tidings. No one suggested that maybe, possibly, perhaps they should tell Suffolk or Jane to whom they'd pledged their honour and their lives. I'm getting judgy again, sorry. Eventually they were ready, and offset these great and noble men full of self-importance and relief, to save their nation and the Queen that all along they'd really wanted to be on the throne. Not that Protestant usurper Jane Pshaw The very thought, Ptui, It was not very far from Baynard's Castle to Cheapside, maybe half a mile or so. So, let's say quarter of an hour at a snail's pace. As they processed through the streets, more and more people gathered, helped by the Earl of Pembroke scattering golden coins to the crowd in his excitement. People laughed and shouted for joy as the news of what the council was about to say spread among them. Long live Queen Mary, went the cry. At Cheapside, a herald proclaimed the news. Mary was Queen. Great was the triumph of my time. I never saw the like, and by the reports of others, the like was never seen. Caps by the hundred were thrown into the air. Tears of joy watered the London streets. Bells started ringing, and then, rather alarmingly out of thought, Bonfires. Shiver heard the noise, saw the fires, and thought it looked like Mount Etna erupting. The only other noise you might have heard was the clacking of knitting needles as the more advanced of the self-preservers knitting themselves some arse covers. Two of the council were clever enough to know that messengers with bad news might get chucked in the deepest, darkest dungeon, but messengers with good news might be allowed to kiss the new sovereign's hand. Two men forwent the celebrations the Earl of Arundel and William Paget found themselves fast horses and set off into the night towards Framlingham to seek the rebel queen, who was rebel no longer. Meanwhile, pushing their way through the crowds, the remaining lords rode to St Paul's, where they heard the band Te Deum for the first time in ages. Impromptu feasts and banquets started up along the streets. It was party time. As Julius Terentianus recorded, some Catholics rubbed their hands. And they promised a grand time ahead, and impressed by the example of Edward VI's reign, where not one Catholic had been burned. Lastly, at night, they had a public festival and threatened flames, hangings, the gallows and drownings to all gospellers. How true that would turn out to be. And what of Jane? No doubt Jane, Guildford, Francis and Henry stared with horrified and terrified eyes at the fires and heard the sound of jubilation and celebration with a growing sense of disaster, as a wave of hatred and desertion swept its way through the afternoon air and washed into and around the tower.